If you do have your Bibles with you, I'll invite you to open them up with me to the book of Genesis. That's right, Genesis chapter 3. That is where we're going to at least begin today uh, as we continue in this exploration together in this series about what we believe as followers of Jesus. And I hope you'll find the sermon uh, notes there, those study notes helpful for you. If you look at the review section of your study notes, uh, you'll see that we've started this new series three weeks ago. This is our fourth week. We've covered uh, such topics, divine topics, really, so far in the Trinity, the hypostatic union, Jesus being fully God and at the same time fully man. And then last week, of course, we did the Holy Spirit. Uh, we know everything we need to know there is about all those topics, so we can move forward now. Uh, all of those topics focus on what we believe about God as he has revealed himself to be. And this is where all Bible study needs to start. We open these pages to meet the living God as he reveals himself in here. And as he does so, he invites us, us, as we are, to come and be in a relationship with him, to come and to know him. And I think that's pretty cool. And this really neat thing happens also as we read scripture and we behold our creator. We learn something about his creation. And that's what we're going to look at today. We learn a little bit about ourselves and this world we live in and what is clear even from the first few pages of Scripture, which we're going to go to in Genesis 3, what becomes quickly clear is this, that this world we live in as it is now, things aren't the way they're supposed to be. Sin, the darkness in this world and in our very hearts, is not something that God brought to be. It's something that we brought to be. And that's what we're going to talk about today, the reality of sin. In the middle of six days of rioting, thousands of people got injured, 60 people ended up dying. You may recall the famous words of Mr. Rondi King, who went on television and said, can't we all just get along? Can we all get along? And human history before and since has shown us plainly the answer to that question is no. No, we can't. The Bible tells us that there's a reason why we can't. There is a reason why injustice is everywhere we look around us. There's a reason why you put on the news and it's all bad news. There's a reason why what happened with Rodney King, we've seen that play out over and over again since. Why the divorce rate is off the charts, why it's a joke that politicians will tell you the straight and honest truth. There's a reason why kids, children, are being trafficked into sex slavery. There's a reason why something like the Holocaust happened. There's a reason for all of these horrible things. And what we need to hear this morning is that it's the same reason why the first thing you think about when you wake up in the morning is you. It's the same reason why you talk about someone else behind their back. Why you lash out at your spouse or your kids sarcastically. 
while you have that, that feeling of envy and bitterness in your heart when someone else gets the thing that you really wanted for yourself. The Bible tells us there's a reason for all this. Every human heart, everywhere, has the same common problem. The Bible calls it sin. I've got it. You've got it. And it's not a small problem. It is the problem. The human dilemma. The human dilemma is this. God is holy. We learned a little bit about that this morning. We heard Pastor Stephen read those words from Isaiah. Holy, holy, holy. And the problem is that we are not. God is perfectly pure and righteous. We are most certainly not that. We are sinners. Everyone. That's what the Bible says. We all fall short of the glory and holiness of God. And the consequences of sin are more than devastating. They are fatal. Indeed, death itself exists in both its physical and spiritual forms as a direct result of sin. And as those who are impure and unrighteous, sinners are necessarily separated from the one who is pure and righteous. They are alienated from the God of life and love who wants to be in a relationship with us. And in this lifeless state, There is nothing the sinner can do to fix things. You can't do enough right things to make up for all the bad you've ever done. You can't wash yourself clean. You can't even stop yourself from sinning. No, on our own, we are utterly unable to remedy our lost condition. This is the reality of sin as the Bible describes it. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So here I am, just like you, an expert on the topic. Are we not? Very familiar with the subject at hand. Not just out there, but in here. And if you've got a problem with anything, you need to be able to talk about it. And so that's why we're here talking about sin this morning. Because it's healthy to talk about it. I don't remember a lot from high school, but I remember my high school health class, we learned seven steps to solving a problem. And I have no idea what the last six steps were, but I remember the first one. (laughs) The first one is state the problem. State the problem. And that's what we're doing this morning. Our modern American culture doesn't like to do that, doesn't like to admit there is a problem. We love to dance around reality because we don't like to face reality. We'd rather make something else up, some other kind of truth to distract ourselves or avoid entirely the truth and the reality that we do have a problem. We need to state the problem. It's called sin. And it is very important for each of us no matter our circumstances, to understand this diagnosis we have because we're those who are quick to forget it or to downplay it or to make excuses. But we forget its weight and its significance. But here's another reason why we must continually talk about sin and confess our sin. 
not just to remember that we have a diagnosis, but to remember that unlike so many other diagnoses out there where nothing can be done, this disease has a cure, but only one, the blood of Jesus. Our goal today will be to remember, yes, the grave reality of sin, the weight of it all and our culpability in it, so that in turn, we can appreciate the wonder and the beauty of God's grace shown to us in the person of Jesus Christ. The Bible says that everyone is a sinner. The Bible also says that everyone who believes and calls on the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. Yes, we believe in the reality of sin. And thank God for the reality of a Savior. I'd like to pray and ask God's help for our time in discussing this serious topic. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do pause now before we jump into your word together to thank you for it. We thank you for not leaving us to guess at what truth is and answers to a problem such as sin, but you show us these things in the pages of scripture. And so we come to you now for two reasons, to thank you for the hope laid out in these pages, the truth that you has revealed to us, and then secondly, to ask for your help to apply that truth to our lives, not only to understand it, but to put it into action so that it may change how we live in obedience to you. We know we need your help for this. So as we continue this morning, our prayer is that you'd use this time to help us, Lord, and give us the truth you have for us to change us. We pray, of course, in the name of Jesus and through the Spirit. Amen. Okay, you got your Bibles? Genesis chapter 3. We must begin here because we must begin by defining terms. We're talking about sin, but what is sin anyway? This chapter will give us a pretty good idea of what sin is in terms of its nature. And of course, that's why we're going here. To answer a question like, what is sin? We don't make it up. We come to the authoritative word of God, to the Bible. And in this case, to Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is where sin is first seen in the pages of scripture. In context, of course, sin has not yet entered the earthly world. In chapter 1, detailing God's creation in all its beauty, including the first man and the first woman, including us, humans, God used a good word to describe his good creation that reflected his good nature. He calls all that he had made good. Good. Can you imagine this world? Good. Think about that. What it was like for Adam and Eve in that garden where there was yet no sin. No sin out there, no sin in here. No problems, no suffering, no death. We really can only imagine what that must have been like because we've never known anything like that. This was creation and included in creation humanity as God intended it and made it to be. This was the way things are supposed to be. But as you know, 
Adam and Eve blew it. And Genesis 3 records what that is like. But before we read, I want to remind us that our purpose in going here is not to say, Adam and Eve, they blew it, as if only they are responsible for a sinful world. No, part of our purpose, as the Bible teaches us to, is to see our hands in this mess. So when we say Adam and Eve blew it, what we're really saying is Adam and Eve blew it. We blew it, as in mankind. So we will read this account with that lens, remembering that what we see here in this chapter, what Adam and Eve do, this is what we do all the time. Make sense? Okay. What is sin? Let's read this together. Um, Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves loincloths. We'll stop there for now. There's a lot to chew on just in these seven verses. Let's start with this mention of the serpent. He's described as crafty in my ESV Bible. Perhaps in your Bible it says cunning. In other words, he is deceitful. He's up to no good in the neighborhood, as they say. This is Satan, the tempter, the deceiver, and as Jesus calls him, the father of lies. And here we see his lie. So as we see this serpent sow this, this web of, of deception here, we, we learn something about sin. It is always built on a lie. Sin is always built on a lie. Let's explore this a little further. Notice the question that the serpent asks in verse 1. He starts off this way by saying, did God actually say? Stop there. Did God actually say? He's not saying, maybe you, you misremembered what God said. No, he's saying, God doesn't have your best interests in mind. If he is as good as he says he is, why would he hold something good back from you? He throws doubt in saying this on both the character of God, his goodness, and the authority of God, that he's the one who can tell you what to do and what not to do. Not only does the serpent suggest to Eve that God is not good, but also that God is not authoritative. And remember, these are the exact same temptations that we face and fall into, the serpent's words here. Let's talk about these dynamics. First, 
God's authority come into question here. When we sin, we are saying that God doesn't have the authority to tell me what I can and cannot do. That's what we're doing when we sin. It's in a similar way to a teenager who perhaps there's a rule in the house that you have to be home by 10 o'clock. And when a teenager breaks that rule, he's not simply broken a rule. Yes, of course, he has done that. But he's done something much deeper than that. He has rebelled against the authority of his parents over him as his parents. They have authority over him, and he's rebelling against that. He wants to make his own decisions. He wants to go his own way because he's got his own ideas of what are in his best interests. And being home by 10 o'clock, that's no fun at all. He wants to call his own shots. He wants to be the one who's in authority. So in a similar way, sin isn't just about breaking rules. We could define it simply as that, as you know, breaking God's rules, his law. But it's something deeper than that. It is rebellion against the very authority of God himself. In the same way, the teenager through his actions is saying, you're not the boss of me, mom and dad. When we sin, our hearts are saying the same thing to God. You're not the boss of me. When we sin, we make ourselves the Lord of our own life, our own God, the one who gets to call the shots, the one who gets to wear the crown. And in doing so, we claim the place of authority that rightly belongs to God and God alone. This is the essence of Satan's tempting message to us all. Call your own shots. Put the crown on your own head. And we see it in something as innocent as a Burger King commercial. Have it your way. You know, you've seen it, right? That's the, that's the essence. That's what Satan tempts us with in our ears. Do what you want. Have it your way. Do what you think is right. Call your own shots. You may recall in the New Testament the seemingly harsh words of Jesus to Peter when he said, get behind me. What does he call him? Satan. Get behind me, Satan. Jesus had just told his disciples something very serious, that he was going to suffer and die. And Peter rebuked Jesus. Think about this. He took, as we learned two weeks ago, Jesus, who was fully man and fully God, he took God in the flesh and rebuked him, telling him that what he just told them should never happen. See, Peter had his own idea of how the Messiah would take care of things by getting rid of the Romans, for starters, not by suffering and dying. And Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Then he says this, for you're not thinking of the things of God, but the things of man. And just like Peter, we have our own ideas of how things should go in our life. This is our life we're talking about. We want things to go a certain way. We have our own idea of what is best for us, and we want to be the one who's in charge, who's steering the ship, we are the ones holding the scepter of authority. Of that, and the scepter says, I have the right to do whatever it is that I want to do whenever I want to do it and how I want to do it. And Jesus says that we're supposed to give that scepter to him, to hand off control to him. After he rebuked Peter, he turns to his disciples and said, if anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself. 
pick up his cross and follow me. But boy, as sinners, we like holding on to that scepter of authority. We clench it, and that's what sin is. It's clenching on to control of our lives and the right to do whatever it is that we want to do. We don't want to deny ourselves the right to do that, whatever it is that we want. But God asks us to give that to him. And when we sin, we rebel against his authority. Indeed, the authority of the one who is in control always is, always was. We rebel against God himself, who stands alone as the sovereign king. And when we remember who God is, the one whom we are rebelling against, it helps us remember the weight of our sin, the significance of it, especially the smaller sins, the seemingly you know, respectable ones, you might call them. That's what Jerry Bridges calls them in his book. He has a book called Respectable Sins. These are the ones that we're quick to downplay. It's not really that big a deal. They're just there. They're normal. They're a normal part of life. They're, they're, they're fine. But we must remember that sin no matter what it is, seemingly small to us, sin is still sin. It's serious because at the end of the day, it's still rebellion against the sovereign king of this universe. So yes, some sins are more serious in one sense than another. It's more serious to murder someone than to angrily yell at them. But what we need to remember about our angry yelling is that it is no less than treason against the king. And if that weren't enough, rebelling against God is only one aspect of the equation when it comes to sin. In addition to rebellion, at the core of every sin is unbelief. Sin is unbelief that God is who he has revealed himself to be. When we sin, we lack trust that God is who he says that he is, that he's good and loving and that he's got our best interests in mind. He does. And we see that right here in our story in Genesis 3. The serpent calls into question the goodness of God, his character, in withholding this good fruit, as he puts it. And when Adam and Eve partake, they're buying into that premise that God can't be trusted, that he doesn't know what is best, and therefore his ways aren't best. Satan calls into question the very integrity of God's word when he outright lies in verse four, contradicting God. Eve said, we're gonna die if we eat this fruit because that's what God's told us. And in verse four, Satan says, you will not surely die, directly contradicting the word of God. And Satan says, not only will you not die, it's gonna be a great thing. Go ahead and do it. And we have to remember that we face the same question and often fall to it all the time. God says one thing, Satan says another thing. Who are you gonna trust? And when we sin, we listen to the wrong voice. We cast the truth aside, and we embrace the lie that's before us. This is what the Bible tells us. Let's go to Romans chapter one, if you would turn there with me. Into the New Testament, Apostle Paul, of course, writing this letter long ago, has application for us and every human that existed because what we're about to read applies to all sinners. All humans are sinners. All of this applies to us. And what we're going to see is he, he lays out the bare facts of, of sinful humanity when it comes to our lack of a trusting relationship with God 
and therefore our lack of a relationship with the truth. So Romans 1, we're going to start reading in verse 18. Let's read this together. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness, here's the key phrase, suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. We'll stop there. I hope that as we read that, you saw what applied to you. Two key phrases I want to see here in verse 18. Those who by their unrighteousness, that is a reference, of course, to sin. So you might say, by their sin, they suppress the truth. And then skip down similar language to the beginning of verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. This is what we do when we sin. We suppress the truth. We suppress the truth. The truth that deep down we know to be true. It has been, it has been plainly given to us, plainly perceived, clearly perceived is the language that's used here. God has shown us just through creation alone that he is God and he is good. All of us are without excuse. We know the truth and, and we suppress that truth. We keep it at an arm's length so we can continue doing what we want to do. Even when we know in the depths of our heart that it's wrong and it's ungodly. And in doing so, we've exchanged the truth about God for a lie. A lie that's promising us what only God can give. We've chosen to believe Satan's words that there is a better way than God's way. He's not worth following because he's not who he claims to be. And we might not necessarily consciously think this way and, and say these words in our minds, but when we choose to sin, this is the nature of what is happening when we do. When we sin, we exchange the truth about God for a lie. Said simply, the sinner lacks trust in God as God and fails to treat him as so. And there is another lack that is present in sin that we must address, and that is the failure to do what God has asked us to do and to be then who God has asked us to be. Oftentimes, I think we think of sin as the bad stuff that we do, and that's true. That is sin. When we do wrong things, that is sin. 
But on the other hand, sin is also our failure to do something good, something that God calls us to do. What it means to be human today is not what it should be. The true way to be human was revealed to us in Genesis 1. What it means to be human was laid out there where we learn that all humans, including you and me, were, were created in the image of God himself, the image of the triune creator. And our role then as human beings is to be image bearers, to show what God looks like, to bear his image, to represent him on this earth. And the way we do that is by ruling over his creation. It's a high and honorable call to be image bearers of God. Obviously, though, when we sin, our image looks nothing like him. We're supposed to represent. And yet when we sin, we misrepresent him. And therefore, we fail to live up to this high calling we've been given. So sin isn't just the bad stuff that we do, it's the good that we fail to do as well. There is so much more we could say on all these points, but we have the difficult task of keeping things short today while also saying something of substance. How are we doing so far? Okay? All right, we've covered a lot on the nature of sin. And I pray that as we continue, that the Holy Spirit is laying on our hearts the weight of this reality, of this thing called sin, this problem that we all have. And it's appropriate to call it that, sin, a problem, because it is a problem. As you can see on the next headline on your study sheet there, sin is a big problem with big consequences. And we're very familiar with those consequences. We tend to get flustered and frustrated with all kinds of things in life. Life is flustering and frustrating. And I ask this question to myself as much as to you. How often do you get flustered and frustrated with your own sin? Not enough is the correct answer. Other people's sin? Oh yeah, I've got a list. But my own wrongs? Not so much. There's no problem that should bother us more than our own sin. Of course, we should be bothered by the sin that's present in this world, the resulting brokenness that we see all around us. That should absolutely bother us. But we must acknowledge our part in making it so. We must be bothered most by the sin and brokenness we see in our own hearts. Of course, something that almost goes without saying is that sin is very destructive. First, it is self-destructive. We so easily damage ourselves physically, yes, spiritually, yes, for the momentary pleasure or the relief that's being offered in the moment. And we often do this as well. We buy into the lie that sin, especially secret sin, will affect no one else but that is a lie. And we're surprised when we, we hurt people around us and we wound those that we love. You only need to turn on the news to see that sin, of course, is very damaging. Death in numbers reminds us that sin is not only destructive but lethal. And some of us would prefer to keep the news at an arm's length. 
to box out all the negativity, to ignore all the hurt in this present world, to pretend that it doesn't exist and just think uplifting and positive thoughts. And, And while it's true that we can, of course, become bogged down in negativity and begin to despair, on the other hand, we must be very wary of downplaying the presence and the weight of this reality called sin. Because it doesn't just exist out there. It exists in here. And part of our need is to remember our need, specifically our need for a savior. We may be quick to say they need Jesus or the world needs Jesus, but we must be quicker to say I need Jesus. Sin reminds us of that daily need we have for Jesus our need to daily depend on him. We don't just need Jesus at the moment of salvation. For those of us who have put our trust in Jesus, you may have noticed something. When you woke up the next day after that moment of salvation, that you woke up with sin in your heart still. We don't just need Jesus at the moment of salvation. We need him every minute of every day. Sin is damaging Sin corrupts, which means as sinners, we damage and we corrupt, which means that we need Jesus desperately all the time. Another consequence of sin is separation. There's hurt in just saying that word, separation. The simple truth is sin separates. There, of course, is a horizontal element to this and a vertical element. What I mean by horizontal is on a a human-to-human level. Divorce exists because of sin. And I'm not just talking about the legal kind. Severed relationships are a direct result of sin. It tears people apart. And its destructive nature is perhaps felt most here in the context of broken relationships. Sin is dehumanizing. It's damaging and it's dishonoring. We all know it can get very ugly and twisted very fast. And people are left broken. Left and right. Every human relationship on earth is imperfect and damaged in some way because of sin. And yet we know that sin does not just separate us from each other. Sin separates not only people from people but people from God. This is the big human problem, or you might say the sin problem. We've said it before, God is holy. We are not. He is perfectly righteous, and we are sinners. Necessarily then, as the Holy One, God cannot be with sin. He cannot commune with sin, and so separation must be a part of his judgment on sin. And we see that in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. That as part of his judgment on Adam and Eve, he casts them out from his presence, kicks them out of the garden. Yes, sin separates us from each other, but most importantly, sin separates us from God as part of his judgment. And that's the next point, is that sin brings just judgment. Our sin, no matter what it is, big or small to us, it is primarily against God. It is an affront to the God who made us and loves us. 
Again, we don't often think of sin this way. We belittle its significance. But all sin, all sin is significant because of who it is against. There's a story in the Old Testament about a sinner who's just like you and me. His name is King David. And there was a time where he saw something that he wanted. It was a woman. And he sinned greatly to get what he wanted. He had her husband killed so that he could have what he wanted. And God would send the prophet Nathan to go and confront David about his sin. Now David, of course, had sinned against Bathsheba. He'd sinned against Uriah, whom he killed. And this is what God says through his prophet to David. You, David, have despised the word of the Lord. You have despised me. David apparently got the message for in Psalm 51, he says this to God, confessing this sin. Against you and you only have I sinned. Our sin is primarily against the God who made us and loves us. We sin against each other. It has consequences for each other. But our sin is ultimately against God. And we have to understand the weight of this. In Ephesians, the Apostle Paul exhorts his readers, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. And in that short command, we learn something about sin, that sin can cause God to mourn. We already know that our sin is displeasing to him, but this sounds like much more than displeasure. Grief implies sadness and pain. This is good news. Did you know that God is a loving father? He's a loving father. And as a loving father does, he cares about us, deeply so. He does not want us to get hurt or to be the source of hurting ourselves or hurting others. No parent likes to get a phone call that says, your kid was being a bully and hurting other kids. And in a similar way that it hurts parents to see or hear their kids do the wrong thing and go the wrong way, God is hurt deeply by our sin. But we also learn that God is not just displeased or saddened and hurt by our sin but that he's also angered by it. And this is a righteous anger, a just wrath over our sin. His goodness is plain to us, his law plain to us, and we break it at every turn. We do the exact thing he asks us not to do, and we fail to do the one thing that he does ask us to do. The Bible says a lot about God's wrath, which only exists, of course, because of sin and evil. The fact that God is a just God who does not let any evil go unpunished. This is good news. Because what kind of God would he be if he did not despise sin and evil? And he just let injustice and unjust people get away with it. But thank God that is not who he is. He is perfectly just. And he will see to it as he hates evil, that in the end, justice reigns. The right thing will happen. And when we realize that we are among the guilty, it's humbling. As sinners, each and every one of us, we are all deserving of God's wrath. We are all worthy of hell. 
And if you think about the fact that God and his perfect justice will not let even one sin, no matter how seemingly small to us, go unpunished, we might wonder, what hope do I have? What can I possibly do? Or as the disciples asked Jesus, who then, who then can be saved? And you know what Jesus said to them? What is impossible with man is possible with God. If you look at our doctrinal statement there, I included what it says about sin. And we believe what the Bible teaches that the answer to what can we do about our sin, the Bible says the answer to that is nothing. There is nothing that you can do on your power to fix things with God. That is what our doctrinal statement means when it says that we believe that man is totally depraved. That doesn't mean you're as evil and sinful as you possibly can be. It means that you and I are utterly unable to do anything on our own power to save ourselves. Our heart is so bent towards sinning that we can't stop and turn to him. This means, of course, then that the only solution to the sin within us is not to look inward for a solution, but to look outward and not simply outward, but Godward to the one who does provide the solution. And this book tells us that good news. Yes, it lays out the fact that we are sinners, but it also lays out the good news for sinners everywhere, that there is a solution to sin. It's called the gospel. That's what we call it. And it goes like this. Jesus, the very son of God himself, he took on human flesh, just like you and me, He lived in this broken world, but unlike you and me, he lived a perfect, sinless life. He did so knowing that we never could. And then he went to the cross. And innocent as he was on that cross, he bore the full wrath of God against human sin. Not just some of the sin, not just most of the sin. All our sin crucified to that cross. Jesus took on the wrath that we deserved on that cross. And more than that, three days later, he did not remain in the grave, but he rose again to new life to show that the power of sin and death does not have victory. Jesus does. And for those who put their trust in him, in Jesus, that victory The victory of his power over sin is continually exercised by the Spirit's work in our hearts. As the Bible says, we're being renewed, we're being made new day by day. This means that included in the saving work of Christ, for those of us who trust in Jesus, when it comes to sin, we can trust these two things. Included is the complete forgiveness of our sin. Again, not just some, most but all our sin. It means that God no longer keeps a record of all the wrong that we've ever done. Think about that. All the bad you've ever done, the bad you're going to do, the good you've failed to do, and the good you're going to fail to do, it's paid for. It's forgiven. At the same time, God promises that if you put your trust in him, not only are your sins completely forgiven, but that he's going to take sin and remove it completely from your heart. 
The Bible says that when we see Jesus, we will be like him, which means that we'll be perfect as he is without sin. Sin is serious. Sin is powerful. But sin doesn't win. Jesus has already won. And I want to leave you with these words from John Newton, who you may have heard of before. Once the captain of a slave trading vessel, he is a sinner, just like you and me. He came to know Jesus in his life. And later on in his life, he said this, my memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things, that I am a great sinner and Christ is a great savior. Would you stand and we'll close together in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you with such gratefulness in our hearts. Sinners, every one of us, we come with gratefulness because we know you have provided a solution to save us from our sin. And we know that you've done so through the shed blood of Jesus. Help us to remember the weight of our sin, past, present, future, that put Jesus on the cross. The cost of our sin displayed there and also the beauty of your grace your love and your mercy shown to us by his shed blood there. Help us also remember that there is victory that's possible because he rose again from the grave so that as we leave this place, we can trust and live in victory over sin, that we don't need to keep following the prince of the power of this world, Satan. We don't need to listen to his voice. We can listen to yours and follow you in obedience because of the power of Jesus. So Lord, help us to live this way, to trust you, to see you as you are, and to live in such a way. We know we need your help for this, so we ask for it as we leave this place, that we remember those two things, that we are great sinners, and that Christ is a great Savior. We pray, of course, in our great Savior's name, in the name of Jesus, amen.